My name is Dustin Kelly, but everybody calls me DJ. I'm prior army, serving as both a Ford observer and a military police officer. I've spent the last 14 and a half years as a police officer and detective in a large metropolitan police department. Two things that I've learned throughout my career. One, everybody has a story to tell. And two, the best stories are true. This is the DTD Podcast. In three, two, one, and we're live. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the DTD Podcast. This week, in a bonus episode, I talk with a writer in the thriller genre who has penned an amazing story full of espionage, tradecraft, violence, and politics in the Middle East and the United States. Matt started his writing career in life after speaking with David Baldacci at a book signing when he asked if he was too old to start writing, and he was told that the industry could use some young writers. His first novel, Surviving the Lion's Den, introduces the reader into a world that lies just below the surface for not only the reader, but for the characters themselves. His second novel, The Iranian Deception, promises more excitement, violence, and the characters that were loved so much from the first novel. It's a great pleasure for me to not only introduce this writer, but to also recommend this fantastic story to be introduced into your personal library. Please welcome the guy who said he could be a good friend of the show, Don Bentley in 80s movie trivia, Matt Scott. What's going on, my friend? Hey, DJ. Doing good, man. Thanks so much for having me on. I really appreciate it. Yeah, I'm so happy that you're here. Uh, I told you when you sent this and I read this book, it is absolutely fantastic. Surviving the Lion's Den. It seems like you've been writing forever, and I really wanted to introduce the listeners and the people that supported this show into your world because it is an amazing one. For only having two books, you seem like you've been doing this forever. Oh, thank you. Yeah, the uh, the first one was, was uh, you know, you, you have your life to write your first book, right? So um, it, it took me... I think I started working on it. I met Bill Dachi in November of 19, I think. And uh, I came home and I started writing it right away. The first draft of it was like 130,000 words. It was, it was a monster. And it was really about three friends that went over to Iran. So I, I, I hired an editor out of New York by the name of Caroline Tolley. And she uh, really helped me mold it into much of what you see in the in the final version which is 30 to 40,000 words less so you know you really have you know your life to kind of craft it I always kind of had this story in me somewhere but uh, Jack Carr famously says that once you get to a point where you're making like 1% changes over and over and over it's ready to go to publish and for me I kind of cranked down on that 1% over and over and over I just made a lot of little tweaks you know did he look in this direction or need to look in that direction? Because uh, uh, little details like that matter. You know, I don't have, as much as I wish I could say I did, uh, I don't have the, the intelligence contacts yet in, in you know, Washington or anything like that yet. So um, I have to play to my strengths in my writing, which is really situational awareness and putting the characters uh, where the writers can envision themselves going. That's why I chose a character like Kirk Carruthers, uh, who was, you know, kind of uh, one of my, um, one of the reviews I got, it says it was very Hitchcockian because, 
you know, took an everyday guy and, and put it in the situation. I never really thought about it that way. I just wanted to take the readers on a tour of Iran uh, in a way that, you know, kind of Dan Brown did in the Da Vinci Code around Europe and stuff like that. And you had to see Iran through someone's eyes. And I think, you know, as long as you feel that, feel that way, then you can get along with the Kirk Carruthers character. Well, it's interesting that you say that because from what I understand in your biography and talking to you and stuff is that you really weren't a big reader for a long time. Is that right? That, yeah, that's, that is absolutely correct. Yeah. And, and Dan Brown kind of brought you into it. He did. Yeah. Yeah. I hated it in, in high school and college. I, I just hated it. All this required reading. I just, I just could not get into it. So the Da Vinci Code really brought me into it. So, you know, after Da Vinci Code, I did what everybody else did. I went out and got Angels and Demons and uh, Deception Point and uh, whatever that other one is that he did with the NSA. Uh, but, uh, you know, Dan Brown may have brought me to the show, but Vince Flynn made sure I stayed there. Because I, uh, I was looking for a good spy novel, and uh, my journey into the Vince Flynn world, which welcomed me into the Brad Thor world, to the Brad Taylor world, to the Don Bentley world, uh, was uh, I was on an elevator at work. And uh, I was talking to somebody about spy, spy books, and this guy that I'd never seen before and never seen again says, you have to check out Vince Flynn. So I went to Books A Million uh, directly after work. I think I got Act of Treason. I think that was the first one I read. And then he may, I, 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 I've been a fan for life. You know, it was, that was, I, I knew then that was the genre that I needed to stay in. On the, you know, the flip side of that coin, were you ever a writer? I've always thought, thought that I had a talent for writing. Um, it was the college that I went to, Hamden City College, uh, for my undergraduate degree, it had, was a very writer focused, writer conscious college. So, um, it really stressed that. So I kind of like hammered out, you know, some of the, or sanded out some of the raw edges, I guess I should say. But fiction came, it came to me in a very strange way because, um, you know, I guess because I became such a good reader uh, of the genre, I kind of absorbed things. And I also watch a lot of movies. And one of the things that, I've, for better or worse, my wife hates this. Uh, you know, I'll, I'll think of a scene that I didn't think worked very well in a movie and I'll kind of rework it in my head. Like what, you know, what if this character had said this instead of that, or what if they had done this, you know, you, you, you kind of, it allows me to put myself in the character's head, the character, plural characters, plural, put it myself in their heads and see how can I retool the scene? And that's just kind of the way I think about it. But when I'm reading and I, when I'm watching movies, whether it be documentaries or, you know, The Born Identity or whatever the case may be, I just tend to absorb a lot of things. And I always keep uh, a notes, notes on my phone about, you know, interesting things that I kind of pick up along the way. So the fiction thing, I, you know, I tried to do fiction early and it just, it, it just wasn't, it just wasn't clicking. And it, it wasn't really until I sat down and made myself write that first draft of surviving the lion's den that, you know, I really put together a, a truly complete story. I enjoyed writing, but I'd never put together something from beginning to end like that. And even though, you know, probably 40 to 45% of um, what was originally in the lion's den is not there now. 
it ended up being a really good exercise for me because uh, it just allowed me to get it all out. And I learned a lot from doing that first draft. So anybody who wants to do it and is scared to do it, never be afraid of your first draft. I mean, let it be crappy. The delete key is your friend. You can always go back and retool it, rework it. It doesn't matter. You just have to get it out. And that's really what, what worked well for me when I did Lion's Den. But um, yeah, writing, it, it, to answer your question, it's always been in me. But the fiction thing just, I, it came out of life's experiences. I, I guess that's the best way I know how to put it. To tack on to that question, we've covered reading, we've covered writing. You also have no military background and no uh, spy tradecraft background either. No. But I've seen people either talk to you in interviews or write in the reviews on your books that it seems like you've been doing it forever. How yeah. do you drill down and get into those characters? And, and I guess the word would be, once again, tradecraft so well and present it so well like you're very well versed in the in the topic oh i appreciate that um it comes out of you know i do my research i mean you'll see behind me i've got you know a ton of non-fiction books you know one of the and I, I i read a lot of books from people who have retired from the cia from the cia and even though you know they, they'll write their life story or even the, even they'll go on to um, to write, you know, fiction, and you can pick up a lot of little things along the way. Um, a lot of documentaries, even on YouTube, uh, help. And you know, I just, like I said, I keep, I, I always keep a notepad on my phone of things that I, I pick up along the way that I think are really interesting. You know, you can't use, you know, you, you can't use some of the stuff that you know has been done in the board identity because they'll pick that up. But um, other things like, you know. Uh, you know, in the first chapter of Surviving the Lion's Den, one of the things I read was, you know, a guy looking at his watch. If somebody, if you're worried about, you know, being, you're being watched, look at your watch. Because if somebody else crosses the room, looks at theirs, that means they're, look, means they're, you know, they're following you. Uh, so I just kind of tend to retain a lot of that information, but I'm also a big consumer of it. So, you know, I just stay interested in, uh, spy craft and the the trade craft of spying uh in, in the intelligence world just because I, I just find it fascinating and i wish i had gone that way uh you know i guess i was a little too lazy in my 20s um but you know life turned out differently for me but um it, you know i it's so interesting to me that i just make sure that i stay up on it and you know the, the way the internet has exploded, especially with YouTube, you know, there's so much information out there these days. And you find the right reputable source, like, you know, Mike Morrell, uh, who, who still does stuff uh, from time to time, and uh, Hank Crumpton, and you just, you just pick it up along the way. So I just tend to, I, I just tend to retain information. I can't, I can't really explain it, but it's, when I have an interest in something, I make sure that, um, that I, that I remember it and, and write it down and try and find a way to use it somehow. So why Iran? There's so many countries to pick from. Uh, Don Bentley just recently went to Vienna, you know, in his books. There's so many around the world to pick Russia, Ukraine. Why pick Iran and why pick the Middle East? Well, to me, Iran is the one location that to me, hasn't really been explored yet. From you know, it, it, from a marketing standpoint, I think it's something that 
you know, a, a lot of the people in the West really don't know very well. Uh, you know, it's easy to say, well, it's, it's this crazy country run, run by, you know, these crazy guys that just want to blow up Israel, blow up the U.S., you know, all that stuff. And maybe that a lot of that's not, not altogether untrue, but, you know, I wanted to understand why it was that, you know, Iran came to hate us the way that they do. And, you know, in so I had to really do a lot of uh, research on the 1953 coup of Mohammed Mossadegh, and that kind of brought me into it. And I kind of got hooked. And the Middle East in itself is just so fascinating because, you know, with, you know, a billion Muslims in the world, you know, you kick the hornet's nest over there, uh, it's going to come back and bite you bad. So you really have to handle it with kid gloves. And, you know, the relationship between the Saudis and the Iranians is always kind of touch and go. They're always kind of like, you know, relatives who hate who hate each other but have to sit down at the same Thanksgiving Day dinner table, you know. Right. Uh, you know, um, you know, they find a way to fight, but then they find a way to get along. You know, it's, it's always touch and go. Um, so the Middle East is is fascinating because it, it just doesn't take much to create a hiccup over there. But to me, Iran is the battle. It, to me, it's it's the current Cold War. It really is because um, they've never forgiven us for the coup of '53, and you know maybe they shouldn't. But you know, at, at some point, you know, it's time to move on, and a lot of them haven't. And I, it's not gonna. It's not going to get better until we can, you know, improve our relations uh, in Iran. Uh, I don't know if that's possible under the current dictatorship that they have over there with the Supreme Leader. Um, but in the meantime, I do want people to understand, you know, what goes on in Iran, some of the sites that are in Iran, because they do have a very rich culture. And it's not a country that's full of people that, that hate us. There are good people in Iran. They really are. Uh, and But the way they have to fight, you know, fight their own underground battles there, you know, to get, you know, things like beer or, you know, whatever the case may be, uh, you know, the black market operates the economy there. It really does. And the, the, work, the crazy thing about it is, is the government knows it. They know that they need it, but they still have to show this, uh, you know, strong front of, you know. Well, you mentioned uh, it a lot, Sharia law. Yeah, Sharia law. I mean, it, it rules over there. I mean, but there's what you see in the law and what's underneath it, you know, and it's it's a strange, it's a really strange little pact that they have over there. So, you know, they'll let you get away with a lot for a certain amount of time until they have to come after you and then you, you're pretty much screwed. Uh, so it's it's a really fine line to walk, a thin, fine line to walk over there. And I think that that story it, to me was a story that really needed to be told. Uh, so it was important for me to get that out on paper. You know, it, it's funny that we were going to talk about this. I, I've of course read the book, but 60 minutes this last week covered Iran. Um, and they covered it a lot that was it. going on. Well, in that they did a, like a 60 minutes overtime where they cover every time they've been in Iran since the seventies. Now they didn't go back all the way, of course. Um, to 53 to the coup and everything. Yeah. But when you, when you listen to it and they have all of the videos backed up and everything, and we'll put the link to it for the show. But every time you go back to it, you see that hatred that you're talking about, uh, mm -hmm. how they despise the Americans, but not only that, how in the seventies, uh, there was a lot of trying to control the fuel consumption, which 
we see yeah. rolling back into it. And yeah. the whole point, I say all that to say this, every problem that we see today, and I think you would agree, we've seen in the past with Iran, and it just seems like a continuous cycle. It just depends yeah. on what part of the circle we're in at that time. I would I would absolutely, absolutely agree with that. And, you know, the, the rule under the Shah was not great. It was better than I think it was than it is now. But, you know, the Shah was, you know, the, law, the world in, for Iran under the Shah was not that great anyway. I mean, the way he used the Savak was was brutal. I mean, he starved a lot of those people. And if you want me to be honest with you, I think a lot of the Iranian people have right to be angry, you know, with the way, you know, the United States handled things. Um, I think that, you know, I still think that that's something that they can get, that as a person, you can get over as a people. It's harder, especially over there to get over. Um, but they do have a lot of good, good points over there, you know, with the way, you know, especially the, the British controlled the, the fuel over there. Um, and you know, they, they made the, the Iranians work for dirt rages, dirt wages, and didn't get a lot back on the fuel that they, that was rightfully theirs. I mean, you say what you want about Mohammed Mossadegh, but, uh, when he gave the oil back to the people and kicked the British out, he had a pretty good point. Um, but, you know, that being said, it's still it's still a country that, you know, it, it, it's tough to get around. And, you know, if you were an American over there, you know, you're automatically an enemy of the state. You if you you have to declare, you know, yourself going over there and then you have to have a chaperone. That's one of the reasons I put that in Surviving the Lion's Den. And you mentioned one of the 60 Minutes shows, uh, the part in the. Uh, in uh, when it, when Kurt got to Iran and they were playing chicken with the cars as they were crossing the street to go to Azadi Tower, that was that was one of the things that I got from the 60 Minutes episodes. So you asked how I kind of get stuff from time to time, and that's that's one of the places I absorbed it. But uh, but back to your question, yeah, it, it's it, it's it's a strange country. Uh, I think there's a lot of beauty to it, but being able to navigate it to me makes it for great storytelling. You mentioned the Savak, um, and in those interviews with the Shah, they talk mm -hmm. about that openly, and he lets everybody yes. know that's listening, and that's the whole world on these 60 Minutes interviews, that he doesn't mind using them. Now, he puts a little, you know, a, a fine coating over them and kind of polishes yeah. up their story, but you're yeah. very right, and, and you talk about that kind of stuff in this book, so if we can, can we talk about a couple of, let's start with the bad guys um, and kind of what their whole role in this book is, and then kind of your thoughts behind them and why you brought them in, because there were uh, a bunch of different groups that you could have brought in, but you stuck with, I feel like, two main groups. Yeah. Uh, well, with the, with the uh, Iranian Revolutionary Guard, or the, the Islamic Revolutionary Guard, I guess I should say, um, you know, it's... I wanted people to be aware of the brutality that goes on over there. Um, I just saw, you know, a, a, a new story about uh, a lady that was beaten to death, and you know, she went into, you know, had a brain hemorrhage because she was beaten to death because her hijab was wasn't low enough. Uh, so, I mean, that stuff over there is real. I mean, it's uh, it's fictionalized. I put it in there, but you know, it doesn't mean that it's it's not based on true stories. So, you know, with Azam Islani in Surviving the Lion's Den, he, I wanted, I needed a character that 
showed that brutality. Um, and I think I accomplished that pretty well because he stayed on Farad pretty darn hard. Um, and I think that was necessary because there are IRGC guardsmen over there that, you know, they keep a watchful eye on a lot of people. They let a lot of stuff slide, but all it takes really is for them to have a bad day at work and, and they'll come knocking on your door. Um, Raheem Shirazi, who is the, uh, the major general of the IRGC, he was a, he was a little bit different. So every big villain I've come to believe has to have at least a little bit part of him that the readers have to try and at least sympathize with. And what I came up with with him was he was, you know, he was not naturally from Iran. He was trying to get part of the Iranian, uh, the Persian Empire back. And that's why he was going through uh, what he was going through with the Russians to try and get that part of the, the Persian Empire back. Um, and I, I think I, that ended up working really well, but it was, a, it was a tough line to walk because you had to make him be James Bond villain enough that you weren't going to mess with him, but you had to make him sympathetic enough to understand why it was that, you know, he was doing what he was doing. Because if you have a villain out there that just, it's constantly beating people up, not that that's bad, but they're very one dimensional. Shirazi to me was, you know, multidimensional and it was kind of fun to, to play with his mentality a little bit. And that's, I, I think that's where, you know, the, the story arc really kind of started for me because I wanted to be able to tell his story as well as, you know, the Kirk Carruthers story. It's interesting though, when you say that, because I, I didn't really, when you say there has to be, I guess you would say empathy or sympathy towards him a little mm -hmm. bit. Yeah. Uh, I thought that he was very cruel. There was there was really none with me because of the way he was going about doing what he was doing. Uh, yeah. Does that does that make any sense? Because he no. he really yeah. didn't care whether the Iranians, whoever was hurt to to accomplish his goal was to was to crush whoever got in his way. The oh, big yeah. thing about this story that was so great to me was you have <clears throat> two bad guys. And two heroes of this story, I think. I think you painted them both out, and yeah. that works so well because they bounced off each other so much, yeah. um, especially your two bad guys where one guy seems for, I don't know, half the book that he's completely in charge, and then you meet this whole new guy that's even <laughs> more powerful than him, and yeah. then it's the same way with your heroes. You're... You, you hear about a guy and then he kind of disappears into the story and then Kurt is brought, <clears throat> Kirk is brought in and you you have this whole new story and then he's brought back into it. So you have two heroes again. What was your yeah. thinking behind that? Because that's a lot of character juggling. You did a fantastic job with it, but that's a lot of characters to bounce around. Yeah, it was it was tough. Let me go back to Shirazi for a second. First of all, you're absolutely right. I mean, he's the, the, let me make make it very clear. I mean, I, I wrote him as a sociopath, and he is very much a sociopath. What I meant by the empathy was, he, he was he was a guy who wanted to go who, to bring his homeland back into the Persian Empire. So that's at least understandable. It was a, he was a guy who missed home. Now, if anybody who's ever been homesick can you know, at least put themselves in the, in their shoes. So that was the one thing that you could kind of at least understand about him. Everything else was, yeah, I mean, he was, he was doing, he was turning the world upside down to get what he wanted. 
So that was bad. Now, as for you know, the character shaping, so <laughs> this may sound a little bit silly, but you know, one of the TV shows that I really like to watch is Blue Bloods. Now, the Blue Bloods TV show, if you think about it, um, you know, the show cannot exist without the Tom Selleck character. I mean, Tom Selleck is why people come in to tune the show, tune into the show, right? But the Donnie Wahlberg character, he's the one that's always leading. He has the lead case. He's, he gets the most camera time, all, all those things. So, you know, the Tom DeLange character is the one that's really driving the story. You can't really do it without him. But Kirk is, is the main protagonist because everything that you're seeing comes from his eyes. So I really wanted to try and find a way to just take these two roads and just slowly converge them. And then you find out that they're really not that far away from each other. Now, as for Shirazi and Islani, you always have a, you know, a big boss and his henchmen. Um, but I did bring in Marsban Shardell, uh, who, who ended up, you know, I won't give it away too much, but he, has, he plays a very much a bigger role in book two, The Iranian Deception. Uh, I'll go ahead and say it. Uh, he, he ends up becoming uh, the supreme leader. Um, and so that was a little bit of a tease for book two, but it also goes to show you that in Iran, you, no matter how big you are in, in the government, you know, the Revolutionary Guard, whatever, everyone ends up reporting to the Supreme Leader. So it was important to bring that character in and show that even Shirazi was not, was touchable. No one, no one is untouchable there is, except for the Supreme Leader. And um, he, it was kind of the Shardell character. I really changed him up a little bit, you know, in book two, and it was a lot of fun. But uh, it was important to bring him in because, you know, like I said, you can be as big as you want to be in, in the military. But in the end, it, it all goes to one person, and that's the spring leader. Do you worry about when you talked about there's these commonalities that show up over and over, how those stories kind of merge together, the characters merge together. Mm -hmm. Do you ever worry that someone will think that the way you connect them together is phony or hacky or where they, it will take them out of the story? Because I think you did it great how you connected everyone together. But I wonder as a writer, because I've never written anything, do you worry about when you're you're crafting these backstories, how to make them bring them right to the point where you're like, okay, I can believe that happened, but you don't want to knock them over that line where they're like, there's no way. They're they're just doing that to write them together. You always worry about it. Um, I, I tend to think I have some uh, a pretty good awareness of that simply because I put myself, I, I try and put myself in the, in the seat of the reader because you, you, you have to make it believable because if you don't believe it, the, re the reader's not going to believe it. And so you, you have, as a writer, you have to be very honest with yourself. And, and if you write, if I'm typing something, I'm writing something and it's just like, am I, am I, am I, this might be a little bit of a reach. I'm going to try it. And then I'll, I'll go back through and I'll edit it and I'll, I'll figure out whether or not it, it was right or not. But the chances are, if you feel like you're reaching, the chances are that you are, um, so you, you never want to take that, that big of a chance. Um, luckily, you know, for me, I have a really good editor and he is, he is a tough son of a bitch. I'll tell you, he really, he, he, he knows how to stick it to me when, uh, when, when, it, when I, he knows I'm reaching. So, 
Um, you know, I do have that on my side, but as a writer, it, it is always something that you have to make sure that you're conscious of because in the end, all writers report to the readers. I mean, they, they are our bosses. So if, if you want someone to, you know, read your book, like your book and recommend it to someone, uh, you, you can't play around with them like that. There, there's certain things they'll let you get away with, but they also know when you've gone too far. Uh, you know, one of the criticisms I think I got on, on Lion's Den was, you know, the, um, the wingsuit flying. Uh, you know, it was like, well, these guys have never done this before. They would never survive. Well, you know, you have to look at the situation. You know, they had no other way out. Um, you know, it's not like I gave them three options and that's the one that they chose. Um, it was a cool exit. If you look at the border of Ashgabat and Iran, it's, you know, it's, it's definitely possible that it could be done. And it, to me, it was, it was an escape story that, you know, had, nothing had ever been done that way, at least that I'm aware of. So you try and be aware of, you know, situations like that, but you have to know where the line is. You know, you can, you can do a lot of things and then the reader will, will let you kind of get away with some of the other stuff. But if, if you start doing a lot of little things wrong, they're not going to let you get away with the big stuff. So it's just, it's an awareness as a writer that you have to, you, you have to be able to harness and, and, and know and navigate through. Well, and, and the reason I asked that was because the way you do it, when you connect all these stories, when they finally come together at the last three quarters of the book, we'll say the characters, how yeah. they really start joining together. Yeah. You don't give it all away at once. And that's what I yeah. meant with that question was, how do you take it and do you ever worry about it? Because you say a little bit like, you know, someone will say something kind of in passing and you'll you'll think as a reader, okay, there's a connection there somewhere. And then mm -hmm. four or five chapters later, you'll see a little more of the connection. And then mm -hmm. as you draw out the book, you get more and more of the backstory. But it's not all at once. It's not this yeah. thing that hits you over the head with how common they are, how they would know each other. Yeah. And it draws out the story. Adding yeah. on to that question of worrying about if people will think it's hokey, drawing it out. Do you worry about if you draw a certain point out too long in your stories that you might lose somebody? I, I certainly think that it, that it's possible, but you know, you have to look at, that's where pacing comes in. Um, you know, you mentioned some of the other things, you know, tying up the loose ends. You throw a lot of, you, you don't want to give, you never want to give the data, the reader a data dump, you know, where you just, you know, it's 10 pages of, you know, backstory and all that. You have to play with a lot, put a lot of Easter eggs in, you know, like, you know, like, like in a movie, you know, like the Easter egg movies. Uh, you put that stuff in and then all of a sudden you bring it back, you know, 15 ch chapters later and the reader goes, aha, I, rem I remember that now. So now it's starting to make sense. So. In the end, it's 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 a little it's a big loop, and then you're slowly tightening it, tightening it, tightening it, and then they get and then they get it. Now, if you draw it out too long, um, you know that's all that's always a concern, you know. It, but you, it all it comes down to is you know the pace of the story and whether or not I feel that it's it's believable. Um, and you know, I do tend to be a little bit of an overwriter. That's one of the reasons I have the editor that I have because we can cut things down a little bit. Um, but you know, the situation—you have to put yourself in the head of the characters, and if as long as you're, you you can see yourself and visualize what you have those characters doing, 
the chances of you know drawing it out too much uh, lessens quite a bit, I think. Um, but you have to be as honest. You have to be honest with yourself. You know, if you feel like you're drawing it out too long, then chances are you are. I want to talk about the corruption that you talk about in the governments because you talk about the corruption in the Middle East, but you definitely do not not go light on the corruption in the United States government. Uh, and, and I would think that you're even more harsh on the United States government than you are on the Middle East. And I am I wrong in thinking the way you write it is we should be better than that. That's why it's such an important factor in the story. Is that did I read that correctly in the book? Um, I, I think you're right about it. Um, you know, the, the corruption that you're, I think you're referring to with, with the Vivian Walsh character, right? Is that what you're referring to? Okay. So, you know, Vince Flynn kind of famously said that there was a recipe to his novels. Okay. You had your heroes, you had your terrorists, and then you had your, your politicians on the side that are always kind of making trouble for people. Um, so the, the political side of it was I had to, I had to involve her in the story. So that was a way to, I, I wanted the, the political side to be, have an involvement in there. Um, it wasn't just something that, you know, you know, they're trying to shut down the budget or, you know, something like that. So it, I wanted it to be a very wide storyline. Um, but Yes, you are correct, you know, and I think as the readers go through, you know, books two and when book three, when it comes out, you're going to see, you're going to see the light at the end of the tunnel. So I, it was really a way for me to introduce readers, not that they are, don't, that they're not already aware, but to see the corruption and, and see that, yes, we do have to be better, but, you know, we can turn it around too. And that was, that was an important uh, line that I that I wanted the the readers to cross because we do have to hold them accountable, um, and there's too much of it, and there's a lot of politicians who will not be named that have acquired too much power, and when absolute power always corrupts absolutely, so that was that was definitely something that I, I wanted to get across. So, bravo to you, sir, because you're actually the first one that actually brought it up. Oh, well, thanks. Uh, why her background? I don't want to go into what it is, but why did you give her the background you did? I understand that it ties in at the end, but I think there's more to it than that. I think there's a deeper storyline there. Why give her that background? I always liked it because she was holding a secret. And it, there's a little bit of symbolism in it a little bit because you know the politicians in Washington, everybody's holding a card of secrets. They all have skeletons in their closet that they don't want anyone to know about. But it, it really, it made that, her backstory made her more vested in the scandal that she was getting involved in. Uh, so I think that's, that's why, but uh, I also wanted to make sure that, um, the secret, the, the secret came out in the end, and she got what was coming to it. Because Vince Flynn did it better than anyone I, I think will ever do it again. Is that you always want to make the politicians so bad that you just want to jump through the book and strangle them, but then you have the hero that comes in and does it for you, and then it's like all of a sudden it's like ah, oh, that was such a relief. 
Um, so, but her secret made her more vested in what she had to do. She wasn't, you know, she wasn't doing it for money. I mean, there was money involved, but, um, you know, it, it, it was, it wasn't just a power struggle. There was something, there was a personal element to it and that made her get involved with what she got involved in. Why so much, uh, changing sides in the book. There's a lot of characters that I was blown away when stuff that they did. Um, and once again, I don't want to get too far into the story, but we have some main characters that are all the way through the book, maybe in pieces, but that mm. are major turning points for the story. Mm, so are you talking about you know, the, the point of view changes that I had? Is that what no, you're No, what to? I'm talking about is, so you have a character that you, you start off and you're, you're reading about them and you think, oh, this is great. I'm so glad these two are together. And it's a very... Mm quick introduction to them, but you feel that there's a rich kind of story behind there. And then at the drop of a hat, it's a completely different person than you thought they were. (laughs) Um, I I think, I I think the reason I did that is because Iran in the spot in the spy world in general, but especially in Iran, nothing is ever really what it seems. And I wanted to make sure that there was an element of a, you know, who can you trust in this story? And as long as you're reading it and you're not sure if they're trustable, then I've got you. It's going to make you turn. It's going to make you turn the page. I mean, cause the, I'm not going to ruin it, but uh, you know, there is a, a big reveal at the end uh, that I think I did. I did pretty well. And that was intentional because I wanted to keep the reader turning the pages. But um, if you don't know who to trust, or if, you know, even take the Farad character, for instance, you know, a lot of people have told me, oh, you know, I, I like, I really like Farad. I, like Farad, I really like Farad, but I don't know if I can trust him all the way. Well, if you feel that way, then that's the point, you know, because, you know, as a spy, if you're over there with an asset, you know, there's always going to be a, you know, 30% chance that, you know, you're going to turn around and that guy's going to stab you or shoot you or whatever. You, you never really know. And that's the experience that I wanted the readers to have. Um, that is as involved as I can get them in the, in, in the spy world that I, that I bring to them. Talking about something else that I loved about your books. And I even told my wife when I was reading it, something that I loved about it was un, just like the characters where they change on a dime. You have points in this book that I never saw coming. And they were how you wrote it was absolutely amazing. Um, and I want to talk about uh, a little bit. I don't want to get too much into the story because it was one of my favorite parts of the book. But the first <laughs> rescue attempt of Tom. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I never yeah. saw what happened coming. And I thought that that was probably one of my favorite parts of the book. Yeah, that was actually uh, that that chapter actually came about on the rewrite. So that was not in the original in the original draft. Um, so I had to rework the story a little bit, and um, I the, <laughs> the I'll tell the everyone who who hasn't read it yet. You know, there's there's three characters in there called the Mix. You know, and they're led by a guy named uh, Jacob Webb. Well. Jake Webb, uh, Dan McAdams, and Wynn McPherson. Uh, that was a way for me to get my buddies in the story. They're, they're friends of mine back in, uh, in, Virginia, in the Virginia Beach area. Um, but I wanted to introduce that chapter early 
simply because how am I going to say this without spoiling it? It deepens, let's just say it deepens Maz's involvement. Maz is a, is a character you see in, in the first chapter. Uh, so it deepens his involvement. And it also helps, you know, makes you wonder, you know, is the Beth Jenkins character, is she trustable? So that, that chapter was really a way for me to set up uh, a lot of other things. You know, when Tom gets taken in uh, the first couple of chapters of the book, okay, uh, the reader's long, okay, all right, that's the, that's the hook, you know, you, you got me, okay. Um, but that chapter, just the, those first couple of chapters, that just brings you to the door. I wanted you to step through it and realize how far down the rabbit hole you're going. And with that chapter, it was a lot of fun to write because you never, you just never knew what was going to happen next. And the, the fact that you enjoyed that chapter to me is means that I did something right. Because I, it, again, this was a journey for me of, I wanted the readers to never be sure who can, who, the, who they can trust. Uh, and you, and as long as you didn't, you never knew that you were going to read to the end. You know, I, I had a, a thought about it, but, but then as the, the story kind of progresses through that chapter, I kind of went to the wayside. I thought about it in the beginning because like you said, it's, it's very, um, very crazy how they get the information. It's very, um, upfront and, and yeah. you even write in there that you feel like there's a little deception. So you lead the reader down that. But you take it even a step further when we'll say everyone gets delivered to the prison and there's another character flip-flop that you're not sure whether you can trust. How do you do that time and time again in the book and not waste a character? Because what I mean by that is if people see so many switches, at a certain point they may turn off and go, uh, you know, I, I don't want to see it anymore. And I'll give you a perfect example in the sure. like The Walking Dead. You see yeah. those characters as it goes on and on, you see them change so often back and forth what their thoughts or what their stance is that you mm -hmm. don't care about them anymore in the end. Yeah. How do you write that into your stories and still make the people care about them and still bring them back where people want to read more about them? I think it really comes from not giving too much too early. Um, you know, you really, you, in, a, in a book like that where, you know, where trust is a big issue, um, you, you just drop a lot of little hints along the way. And then when, when the big reveal comes, it's kind of like, aha, okay, now I understand why he did A, B, C, D, and E. Uh, and you, I don't think you can turn them, take a character and turn them more than twice. Cause after that, yeah, it's, it starts to get, it starts to get redundant. Um, but the idea is you want to lead, you want to leave a little bit of breadcrumbs down the road for the reader. And then when it happens, they can look back and see, okay, now I understand why he did that. And it's been fun for me to, to get feedback from the readers where something like what you just talked about will happen and they'll go back and they'll reread chapter five or six or whatever the case was um, to, to better understand it. And I take stuff like that as a compliment. Um, but you're absolutely right. You can't, the readers are trusting you with their time and their, their time is valuable. So you can't overdo it, but if you drop the, drop the right breadcrumbs in the right place at the right time, you can, you can get the drop on them. And I think 
you know, that's where, as, as long as they understand that there's a payoff to it, you can, you can get away with it. And I think you're right about the time thing because, you know, we're talking Walking Dead. They're like 11, 12, 100 seasons yeah. in, whatever it is. Yeah. Yeah. You sit down and you watch that. It's an hour of your time. Or if you binge it, you know, it might be a day or whatever. Yeah. When you sit down and read a book, you're investing time because you have yeah. to put more into it than to just sit there, veg out, and look at it. You have to yeah. pay attention to everything that's going on in the book. So I think you're right about the time. Yeah. Can we talk about the characters and kind of set up this story without giving too much away? But I really want to, you know, kind of whet the appetite to get people to get into this book and read it. Yeah. Um, so it, it, the idea for me, really, with, with the Kirk Carruthers character, we'll start we'll start with him. I kind of talked about it earlier, but, you know, he is he is your protagonist. He is going to be your eyes and ears going into Iran and his is uh his grandfather gets killed and he doesn't understand why until he, you know, he discovers, you know, some secret letters uh, that uh, indicate that, you know, he was involved in the 1953 coup with Mohammed Mossadegh. And, um, you know, the, there were Iranian assassins that finally tracked him down to, to come and get him. Uh, it took him years, but they finally found him. And when that happens, uh, he decides to drop everything in his life to go over there and, and get revenge for his grandfather's killing. Um, and I think that's a, that's a big step. I mean, I think to me, a lot of readers can sympathize with, you know, they always have this, this one big figure in their family, whether it's, it's a grandfather or a grandmother or whoever it is. So that's kind of the, the hook that I, that I get into the readers. Uh, but at the same time, I have a, a different storyline going on with the Tom DeLange character. You know, he goes over there, over to uh, the Middle East. He goes to Saudi Arabia. He's friends with uh, the Saudi ambassador to the U.S. Uh, they're, they're trying to work some deals because they're, they're very good friends. The CIA trusts him to be in the field and, you know, work the deals uh, because they're such good friends. And uh, he's leaving that meeting and he gets kidnapped. Uh, the Iranians track him down. So you have two parallel storylines going on and they kind of slowly converge and I don't want to give away too much, but you know, they, they, they hook up and they, they, you know, try and find a way to escape from Iran because by that point they're both wanted men in the background. You have the Vivian Walsh character who is uh, trying to get the naval base in Bahrain uh, shut down and you have the Iranians like, um, Samin and uh, Farad, who are operating in the Iranian underground, and uh, through Kurt, you kind of see what it is that they have to uh, live through in the the Ayatollah regime. So uh, there's a lot of little ingredients. Uh, I will admit, one of the things that I was concerned about was that you know readers were not going to like it because I had too much going on. Um, but you know, a lot of good character development helped, and uh, you know, kept the readers uh, vested. Uh, I think my Excel spreadsheet that I used to kind of plot this thing out, you know, I, I reworked it, oh my gosh, probably 70 or 80 times just because I wanted to make sure, you know, uh, I'm not much of a, an outliner, but I do use my spreadsheet and say, okay, I'll look at it and say, okay, we haven't seen Farad for five chapters. Maybe I need to move this character up here. And that's kind of how, you know, I was able to tweak the pacing uh, the way that I did, but, um, 
it, it is a spy adventure. It is an escape adventure. It is uh, a lot of it is a you know a whodunit. It's who who you can trust. But in the end, you know, with regards to Kirk, it is a very personal story. And I think you know having the Kirk character and having his personal story uh, gives uh, readers who may not normally uh, go into the thriller genre uh, have a little. Uh, have a little bit of an adventure with it because uh, that the personal touch will always help. Are the Russians the ultimate bad guys? Because you brought them into this book, you brought them in in very much a kind of backstory uh, in this and they were kind of, you know, peripheral characters, but it's almost like everything was being done to further the Russians uh, progression across the United States or mm-hmm. whatever you want to call it are the, you know, we talked about the eighties and the trivia. They were the, they were the baddies yeah. then they're the baddies <laughs> now. Why yeah. is that so good? And why does it still hold today in stories? I, well, I tell you what, number one, if, if I were to write the Russians today, I, would, I probably would have written it a lot, uh, a lot different. It would have been a lot bigger. I got interested in the Russian piece because I think the Russians and the Iranians, the way they work together uh, in the real life diplomatically is very, very scary. I mean, uh, as their alliance strengthens, uh, the world really needs to be more and more concerned. Uh, I, I don't think they're, in the book, I wouldn't say that they're the ultimate bad guy, but in real life right now, I would certainly say that. I mean, Yeah, and that's what Putin, I mean. Yeah, no, Putin right now, I think, um, as he has gathered more strength and power over the years, we've gotten to see just how much of a looney tune he really is. But he's also very much like the Joker in Batman because he's very calculating. He sees things five steps ahead, but he's also a gangster. Um, I mean, he has robbed, you know, the Russian oligarchs, whoever's out there, you know, he's basically says, I'm going to take 80% of your wealth and you can keep 20 of it, or I can throw you in the gulags. I mean, that's essentially how he's running it. Now I would say with you, with regards to what's going on in Ukraine right now, boy, did we misjudge the Russian military? Uh, because I think it was, even in the Cold War days, I mean, it was easy to say. I mean, they were going to overrun, you know, any country very easily. And the Ukrainians have put up such a fight right now that it's actually been either impressive that they've been able to put up that type of fight or, you know, the Russians have not, you know, held up, you know, what we expected them to, to do. And I think it's a little bit of both. But, you know, given how Putin operates these days, um, and how powerful he is, I think it's a bigger surprise that um, Russia has not been able to squash Ukraine the way it was originally intended. And more to the president, more power to the you know the president of Ukraine. I don't think Ukraine is, you know, they're it's a very corrupt government over there. Don't get me wrong; they're they're not the ultimate bad guys, but I mean, excuse me, ultimate good guys. But the way they've stood up to the Russians, more power to them. And um, are they the ultimate bad guy? It's tough to say. I think I think they're I think they're the first line of defense 
And what I mean by that is like, I think they're the first roadblock we have to go through. I, can, I guess that's a better way to say it. Uh, because they always want to put Putin, he's a showman. He always wants to be front and center. You know, he wants to be out in the, in the woods with his shirt off, showing himself, you know, fighting bears or riding horses or whatever. So he's the first roadblock you get through. Um, I, I really think that uh, China is probably the, the bigger threat simply because of the uh, financial hold they have over a lot of people. Um, you know, thankfully, you know, Hollywood for all the bad, you know, that's out there, you know, they told the, the Chinese to just go pound sand when they told, when the Chinese asked them to remove the Statue of Liberty in the latest Spider-Man movie. Um, but that's the threat, you know, that's there for them is that the more you take their money, the more they want out of the deal. And, you know, money will leverage, you know, a lot of governments, uh, you know, the way they have and their, uh, their grasp on the, on the world is, is steadily growing. And because, you know, they're not the showman that Putin is, I would say that they're the, the probably the biggest threat, but the Iranians to me are the biggest wild card because if they were ever to get, you know, nuclear power, and I don't think the Israelis are going to let that happen, but if they were to get it, you know, they're not going to hesitate to use it. China and, and Russia may actually think about it. Or the Iranians, they won't think twice. I have no doubt in my mind. So can we move on to the Iranian deception? Because we've covered this book about as much. I want to talk about the Iranian deception and then sure. what we have in store for the third book. So let's go ahead and give an outline of the Iranian deception. And so much of what we loved about the first one, I'm sure, is coming over into the second one. Yeah. Uh, so the, the Iranian deception takes place a couple of months after uh, the end of Surviving the Lion's Den. You get to find out what happens to Kirk uh, at the end of the book because I kind of left that a little bit open-ended. Um, I do switch gears a little bit with my main character. You know, Kirk kind of brought everybody to the story, brought everybody to Iran, but I kind of felt like I'd gone as about as far with him as I could simply because his story was so personal with his grandfather. He, he was there to resolve, you know, that part of his life. So... The Ben Thrasher character that you saw in the chapter that you liked and later on in the book, I decided to do a little bit more with him. And I have really had a lot of fun with him because he is just such an emotional guy. He's a great uh, character, though. He's a, it, it's, it was a lot of fun writing him. I mean, what you saw in book one is just the tip of the iceberg. I mean, this guy is he, he's got some emotional issues, but he's very he's very loyal and he's very smart. So there's, there, I did a lot of fun things with, with Ben Thrasher. Uh, and, you know, there's a new Supreme Leader. The book starts out, you know, Beth Jenkins is being awakened in the middle of the night by Farad, gives her a phone call. It says, he's dead. And she was like, and she knew immediately who, who it was. And it was a Supreme Leader. And within three hours, the, you know, the Guardian Council, the Council of Experts has, has named uh, their successor. And it's, you know, the character Mars Bond Shardell. Uh, from book one, and I, I was able to take his character uh, a, a little bit farther, um, simply because he, you know, he has a, a medical condition, a very rare medical condition, where he doesn't feel pain. Um, we've seen that kind of explored a little bit. You know, I think maybe one of the Bond characters was in the Pierce Brosnan days, kind of touched on it, 
but you know they kind of, they made up some like you know he got a bullet in his brain it's lodged in or something like that the the condition that i describe is actually very real it's chromosome chromosome 6 deficiency and it's it's very very rare um, and he wants to he wants to iran to break out of the economic sanctions that the that the west has put on them and he does it by um, facilitating a war between uh, India and Pakistan, uh, the the conflict between India and Pakistan is is ne is really never ending, and it was an avenue that I wanted to explore. But while that's happening, he has he has one of his other goons, uh, Mahmud, uh, from book one, um, and he is a chemist, and he has gotten a hold of. Um, some of the books left over from uh, Joseph Mengele from the Nazis. So the Iranians are using uh, secrets uh, to help control the Middle East by way of you know the Nazis, you know the Nazi regime that's been kind of left over. And Ben Thrasher has to has to figure it all out. I do bring back uh, Tom DeLange. Uh, he had, he he's a little bit more of a minor character this time, but uh, I, I was never I was sure not to forget him. And he has kind of his own little plot line, but in the end, it all comes back uh, at, at the end. And uh, we see, you know, him get into it with Vivian Walsh one more time because she's out for revenge. So um, book one pretty much brought you to the show. Book two is going to make you eat your popcorn. And by book three, when it, you know, it comes out in March, um, it's, it's, the, it's the showdown at the end. For, for Mars Bond Shadell. So I hope the readers like it, but so far, you know, book two is the, the shoot 'em up bang bang book that I always wanted to write. And I was under a lot of I was under a lot of pressure to get that one done. Um, you know, the first book, like I said, you know, I had a lot of time to work on it, kind of constantly reworking. Once I signed my my publishing contract, to be honest with you, my publisher put me on a really tight timeline. So I really didn't have a lot of time to, you know, you know, play with the plot the way I did with the first one. So I just took the idea that I had and I just went with it. And I hope the readers end up liking it. You know, I think I want to change my uh, stance. I think the ultimate baddies would be the Nazis. Um, oh, for and sure. It's, yeah, it's it's great that you bring that into the story. Uh, talking about these two and then going into the third one, do you have a, a title for it? Do you have an idea for the third one? I know that you're, you're close to, and when I say, do you have a title for it? Is there a title that you can tell us or is there anything of the story that you can tell us? The title is going to be the Ayatollah takedown. Um, so you can kind of guess from the, from the title a little bit that, uh, they're going after, uh, Mars Bond uh, Shardell at the end. There's a lot of repercussions from the end of book two going into book three. And um, uh, the Supreme Leader, the new Supreme Leader, he's looking for uh, help from China because the relate. I wanted to explore the relationship between China and the Iranians a little bit. And uh, the way that he finds a way to kind of help shield Iran from the repercussions of book two was reaching out to China to invest more in, in Iran's infrastructure because if they're friends with China, the U.S. is not going to risk their relationship with China to go after Iran, and he knows that. So they have to navigate, navigate their way around that. Um, 
I can't give give away a whole lot more, but uh, I can say I can tell you that uh, you're going to see Ben Thrasher at his best. And there is one particular chapter that I am proud of uh, that I think is going to re that the readers are really going to like. They're not going to see it coming, and I'm really really excited to see how they like that. Do you think you've changed as an author from the Lion's Den to your third book? And and if you have changed. How has that happened? I think I did change from at least from the first draft of Lion's Den because I it was the the focus wasn't there in the first draft that I think you see in the final draft. So to me, I, I think I, I've definitely grown. Uh, I've learned to try and be a little bit better, be a little bit, be a little bit more concise with the words. And what I mean by that is, you know, in the in the first draft, you know, you describe a punch. You know, somebody balls up their fist slowly like this, reaches out, and the person can feel the bone compress against their face. You don't need to be that descriptive. I mean, it's kind of like, you know, Harrison Ford, you know, in Indiana Jones, he just rears back and cold cocks you. Um, so I've learned to be a little bit more concise, I think. Um, but I've also learned, you know, to keep the, the end of the chapters hanging just a little bit and make them want to turn the page uh, a little bit more. Um, but I've also learned, you know, that uh, the delete key is your friend. You know, never, ever, ever be afraid of the delete key because the worst thing that happens, even if you have the worst idea in the world, you get it out there and you say, you know, that's just not working. You can still learn a lot from what you wrote, even though you're not using it. And I tend to be an overthinker, uh, drives my wife crazy. Uh, but you know, I've kind of learned to trust myself, uh, as I've gone along because as I've, I've written chapters, the greatest thing that ever happens to me as a writer is going into a chapter, having no idea how I'm going to resolve the conflict or get a character through a scene. And then, as I'm typing, you just the ideas just kind of flow. You let the fingers do the walking, and the brain gives the signals to, to the fingers on the keyboard, and you just power through it. You just you don't you just don't stop. I I don't stop. So you know by giving myself that leeway, that freedom, it's allowed me to trust my instincts a little bit more. So I think that's probably the best answer I can give you. At the end of these three books, is that the end of these characters? Have to wait and see. Uh, I, my contract with Speaking Volumes is it was for three novels. Um, depending, I mean, I have I do have to look at this as a business, and so book sales uh, do play do play into it. I would love to, I can tell you this I would love to write more with them, um, but you know um, this has been a, a an investment for me, and I'm very proud of it. Um, and I, I certainly hope to, but, uh, in the end it comes back to, you know, reader response and, and book sales. So we'll have to see, but I can tell you that, uh, I do have some other ideas of what I want to do with the character. So I certainly hope not. Well, and that's kind of my next question. So you have guys like Don Bentley who've been picked up to write the Tom Clancy's, uh, you okay. have guys like, um, JT Patton who are now writing, completely different stories from what they wrote from the spy thriller. Now they're writing like a, a horror and things like that. Do you have ideas like that or do you want to stick in this genre? 
Um, I think I would probably stay in this genre just simply because, you know, uh, writers like Brad Thor and, and Don Bentley, they'll, they'll tell you, you know, write what you like to read. And the thriller genre is really what I like to read. Now, I will, I will say that, you know, horror novels are, you know, I guess my guilty reading pleasure. So when I get, when I get into a reading funk and I, you know, I, I, you know, I'm tired of the thriller or the spy genre or, you know, some of the nonfiction stuff back there, I'll put it down and I, you know, I'll do a, a horror novel and then it'll, you know, I'll, I'll finish that and I'll get back into it. So that's kind of my break. Uh, if I could do horror, I would, I would like to, but, um, you know, I don't think I'm that type of writer just yet. I, I would love to do a horror novel, but I, I, I don't know what I write about and if I could pull it off. So that might be a challenge for me. Um, but I would love to do one, but I can tell you that, you know, home is going to be the, this is the spy thriller genre just because I think as technology evol uh, evolves, um, the spy genre gets more and more interesting because you can always uh, dream up new scenarios, uh, new you know political alignments, new gadgets. Um, it, there's a lot of imagination there to me um, that can play out, you know, within the current world that we live in. I mean, um, and that's one of the reasons I kind of I, I, I like staying there because the geopolitical climate that we're in. Um, you know, you, you never, there's all kinds of scenarios that you can bring together. And I think, I think readers are always going to be curious about that. I don't think I'm ever going to come up with a scenario that Stephen King hasn't come up with. I mean, you know, I don't, I don't know, but, um, it's always kind of fun to see things play out in real life and you get an idea of, you know, how you can do it, uh, in, in, in the thriller fiction. All right. So, we're through the books. We'll come back at the end and, and uh, promote them one more time. But you had said to me that you thought you could beat Don Bentley at some 80s movie trivia. So I pulled a little up for us. Uh, this will be a 10-question exam. Oh, boy. Yeah, I might end up putting my foot in my mouth on this one, but I'm going to try. <laughs> Let's start out with an easy one, okay? All right. Which 80s movie was Alan Rickman's first feature film role? Die Hard. Very good. All right, let's move on. Maybe you will do good at this. Which 80s movie spawned six sequels and a TV series? Police Academy. Wow. Very good. <laughs> All right. Here's a quote for you. Okay. Don't mess with the bull, young man. You'll get the horns. Breakfast Club. Do you know who said it? I don't remember the actor's name, but the character's name was Vernon. Principal, the uh, principal Vernon, right? Wow. Yeah, that's yeah. correct. Okay, so okay. three for three so far. All right. Okay. All right. Here's another quote for you. Okay. I could disappear forever, and it wouldn't make any difference. Um, Sixteen candles. Wow. Great job, <laughs> Molly Ringwald. Right. That's exactly right. Yeah. All right. Which two Footloose songs were nominated for an Academy Award for Best Original Song in 1984? Mm, I got to go with the title song and Hero. Hero Let's hear it for the boy. Hear it for the boy. Yeah. Okay. All right. All right. 
Which movie marked the beginning of a long string of successful Disney movies, sometimes called the Disney Renaissance era? Mm, I'm not sure it was 80s, but I want to say it was, was it The Little Mermaid? That's exactly right. Yeah, that's what I thought. Okay, 1989. 90, was it 89? Okay, I thought it was 92. Okay, yeah, okay. A little more right. I remember that one. I li- I was actually, I could say that I lived through that. Mom got all the VHSs in. Yeah, I remember it was a big deal when all that stuff came out. It was kind of fun. All right. We're going to dig down a little deeper now because obviously you know a lot of these. <laughs> What's the name of the lead character in The Secret of Nim? I have no idea. That you, uh, you stumped me on. <laughs> you stumped me on that one, Mrs. Brisby. Yeah, I don't. I don't think I even. I don't even remember that movie. Oh, really? No. All right, I we've got it, the Secret of Nim, the Rats, and the Magic. It was very, very. Um, uh-huh. Yeah. No, it, no, it wasn't me. Never Ending Story was probably the farthest I went. Okay. All right. Here we go. We got All two right. more questions for you. Okay. We came. We saw, we kicked its ass is a quote from which movie? Ghostbusters. And who said it? Bill Murray. Wow. All right, man. (laughs) Which 80s movie, this is your last question, you've only missed Uh, one. Which 80s movie was the first to become a hit largely due to MTV? Oh, um... Oh, man, I'm going to kick myself for for not getting this one. I want to say it's Ferris Bueller's Day Off, but I think I'm wrong. Flashdance. It was Flashdance. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I should have known that one. Yeah, that, I should have. That, that's not bad. That's, Eight out of ten is not, not bad. bad. And and you did beat Don Bentley because, quite In frankly, face, Don. I, I love Don <laughs> Bentley, but he's horrible at movie trivia. So. <laughs> All right, I, couldn't so believe, I couldn't believe that he didn't know Anthony Edwards was Goose. I was so disappointed with him. He didn't know Anthony Edwards was Goose. Yeah. Come on, man. He, he said somebody, he said it was for something else. I don't remember, but yeah, it was yeah. It was a crazy thing. So let's go over everything. Let's promote these books one last time. Let's go over mattscottbooks.com, what people can find there, how they can get in contact with you, and how they can get these books in their hands. Yeah, uh, my website, uh, mattscottbooks.com. I, I, I try and blog uh, You know, once a month, send out a newsletter once a month. Letting people know what I'm up to. Uh, you can find the the uh, synopsis of, of both books along with uh, uh, the book trailers that I've uh, had created with uh, my friend in India named Chetan Batra. Uh, he's done he's done a really good job for me. And he's got one plan for for book three that I think readers are really going to like. Um, there is a contact me uh, point on my website that goes directly to my email. I answer, I answer everyone who, who sends me anything. doesn't matter who you are, what you want. I, I will answer you. Um, my books are available. If you want the, the paperback copy, you're going to have to go to Amazon, but they are available on, uh, e-reader formats everywhere for Google play, uh, um, Apple books and Kindle. Um, book three will be out March 21st of of 2023, the Ayatollah takedown. And if you want to get a hold of me on social media, uh, your best bet is to go through Facebook. Uh, I still have a regular account. I don't have a business account. So just friend me on Facebook or uh, reach out to me on Instagram. I am on Twitter and TikTok as well, but uh, Instagram and Facebook are probably the best ways to get, get a hold of me. 
Well, Matt, I'm so glad you sent me these books. I'm so glad we hooked up. I absolutely love Surviving the Lion's Den. It was a fantastic book. I told you that. And I'm so glad you you sent it so that we could talk about it. And I'm looking forward to everything in the future. I'm looking forward to jumping into the Iranian deception. And then, of course, next year when everything comes out. You did amazing in 80s movie trivia. Guys, make sure you go by mattscottbooks.com. It is a site that you can find out everything you need to know about Matt order the books and they can, like you said, pre-order there, correct? No, they cannot pre-order. I don't do uh, orders through my website, but they, if they contact me through uh, Instagram, Facebook, or even through the website, I will be glad to send anybody a, uh, a signed copy. I would, I will always do that. I always have copies stacked up over here. Um, so we can, we can always talk about that. Not a problem. Okay. Sounds good. So guys, mattscottbooks.com. Uh, once again, I can't say it enough. Fantastic books. I had a great time reading this first one. I can't wait to get into the second ones. Guys, I think that's going to be the conversation for tonight. Now, you know where you can find me, mattscottbooks.com. And if you want more of me, you know you can always find me on Instagram at the DTD underscore podcast. You can find me on Facebook at the DTD podcast. And you can find me on YouTube where all these conversations are in video form. But don't forget, the one-stop shop. It's dtdpodcast.net. They've got episode page for each person that's on this show. You can see pictures. You can find out their links. You can order their books. You can see what they're doing right from the website. You can also catch the podcast in video and audio form. And we're going to be doing more of these where we're recommending books out to you. But I'm so glad that this one was one that we did to start off with. Now, don't forget to go by our sponsor, Police Coffee at policecoffee.com. Now, you know that they are a police-owned business. They brew the freshest coffees, and they send them straight out to you. The big thing about these guys, though, is that they back up what they say. 50% of their profits go to families of fallen officers, and there's no better way to take care of that. They've got amazing blends, amazing flavors, and you can get everything from K-Cups to whole bean to grinds on their website, policecoffee.com. And when you go there, don't forget DJK10, and that will give you 10% off your order. Guys, thank you so much for coming in. Please go check out these books, Surviving the Lion's Den, The Iranian Deception, and of course we have the Ayatollah Takedown coming out next year. Matt, thanks for stopping by. We'll catch you guys on the next one. We'll see you later.